The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 20 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. So the Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. So the media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. Now, most people who listen to this show have a genuine interest in cybersecurity, just like me, just like me. And they they like to listen to and read about cybersecurity news, especially news that affects their daily lives. So the the Cybersecurity Hub is is the place to go for more cybersecurity up-to-date news, especially if you're in the cybersecurity business. So check out their website. Make it part of your daily routine. they got some pretty cool stuff. I think you're going to like it. So, again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So America is under attack. That's what the nation's top intelligence officials had to say about cybersecurity on February 13th during the most recent Intelligence Committee hearings on worldwide threats. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into it pretty deep. And I got some uh, thoughts about some of the things that were said at that committee hearing. But we'll get back to that in a moment. So I'm, I'm super stoked after last week's interview with Robert Rodriguez. I mean, Robert is really killing it with Cynet. I mean, Bobby Rod is, is what we call him. His close friends affectionately call him that. He is just a true visionary, right? The guy is a cybersecurity hero. He should be running around with a cape on with a big CS emblem on it. The guy, he's got me so jacked up about the partnership between Cynet and TF7. I, I really am excited about it. I mean, we're going to crush it, man. We're going to crush it. And I, I wish I had a way to measure the impact that the Security Innovation Network has had on our country's collective cybersecurity defense and death posture. I wish I had a way. Because I believe his efforts have had a profound effect on the way we do business in the cybersecurity space in this country, no doubt about it. And look, I shouldn't even say this country. By the way, Sinet, it just doesn't work in the United States. They work in EMEA and APAC as well. I mean, Sinet's a global organization. So the impact that Robert has had on cybersecurity has not only been felt here in the United States, but in many countries around the world as well. He's truly a phenomenal human being with a very noble business and a very noble mission. And let me tell you, he holds the line when it comes to integrity and objectivity. I, I, look, look, I mean, look this guy up. He's the, he, the man is the Walter Cronkite of cybersecurity, okay? He's just amazing. 
I very much consider him not only a true friend of mine, but a mentor and certainly an advisor of mine. He's helped me tremendously, and I, 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 you know, I owe him a great deal. Uh, if you missed last week's episode with Robert Rodriguez, please, please, please go to one of your favorite internet radio or podcast mediums and check out the TF7 episode number 19 titled, Who are the Real Cybersecurity Innovators? And, and check out what Robert has to say. You'll love it. You can find all prior Task Force 7 radio episodes for playback on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, and Player.fm. We're everywhere. You can't miss us. Check us out. TF7 radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. I can't wait to get him signed up on the advisory board for TF7 once we get going. Uh, what a great advisor is going to be for the, for the network. He's just a, a great cybersecurity professional, and it's, this is going to be one of the greatest cybersecurity, uh, professional cybersecurity networks in the world. All right, Task Force 7, come to a smartphone near you. So you can learn all about TF7 radio and, and TF7 technologies as well on your favorite social media platforms. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio or at Task Force 7 Tech and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio or at TF7 Tech. So and please, if you're a big fan of the show, whether you're on iTunes or just one of our podcast sites or one of our social media sites, please help us to get the word out by leaving a review and giving us five stars. I appreciate your support. Thanks so much. So none other than Adriana Stanford is going to be on the show tonight. And, well, if you haven't heard of Adriana, then you must be hiding out in a cave somewhere because she is everywhere. Adriana Stanford is a a Chilean-American author, international TV commentator, Georgetown-educated international lawyer, LMU professor, internationally recognized privacy and cybersecurity scholar, and she's a humanitarian. Yeah, she does it all. She does it all. So did I mention she's a professor at LMU? (laughs) So a big shout out to all our students at LMU and all our former students at Arizona State University. I'm very glad to have you as part of the TF7 family. Thanks for listening to the show this evening. Hope to keep you on as regular listeners. So Adriana is a leading expert on transatlantic relations, and, and she's a former Georgetown Law Dean's visiting scholar. She's taught courses on business law, ethics, ethical leadership, ethical issues of managers, and principles of international management. She's an Amnesty International USA board member, and she routinely does speaking engagements for the advocacy of human rights while she relentlessly continues to promote the advancements of women in the technology space something that we talk about a lot on this show. So, and we're going to continue to talk about that way. We're going to, we're, we're, we're going to keep pushing that very hard. So Adriana recently co-authored the 2018 security book, Women in Security, Changing the Face of Technology and Innovation, which is part of the Women in Engineering and Science book series. She's also written several other books on ethics. She's a, she's a writer for the Institute for Supply Management, where she published a number of articles that cover important and timely aspects of global corporate ethics and compliance in the security space. She recently published Balancing Security and Privacy in an Innovative World and Human Trafficking, The Global Economy's Plague on Humanity. She wrote that for the Institute as well, so check it out if you get a chance. So Adriana delivered the keynote address for the Information Security, Privacy, and Legal Collaboration Conference sponsored by Hewlett Packard at the 2017 ISA CISO Executive Forum. She's also delivered numerous keynote addresses for major conferences in Latin America, where she's very active, including the CACS ISRM 
Latin America conference, one of the largest technology and security conferences in Latin America for Spanish-speaking professionals specializing in cybersecurity. So Adrian is a regularly featured subject matter expert on CNN Dinero. That's the CNN's 24-hour Spanish-language television station broadcasting to more than 24 million viewers in the United States and throughout Latin America. So that's right. She appears regularly on TV to talk about cybersecurity as a subject matter expert, and she is regularly viewed by 24 million people. So she is a former visiting professor at the School of Economics and Business in Chile where she taught courses on ethical leadership to undergraduate and MBA students. She currently teaches business law at Loyola Marymount University. So prior to LMU, Sanford taught business law and ethical leadership for five years at Arizona State University to more than 1,600 graduate and undergraduate students on an annual basis. So along with her extensive expertise in cybersecurity and in her experience in cybersecurity, she is one of the most highly educated people I've ever met. Adriana completed six years of law school, receiving a Juris Doctor degree from the Notre Dame Law School and a dual Master's of Law degree from Georgetown University Law Center in Taxation and International and Comparative Law. She was the first Latin American woman accepted into Georgetown's dual LLM program and the only dual LLM in her graduating class. So Sanford also studied international and comparative law in the year-long Kakanian program of international law at the Notre Dame London Law Center in London, England. She then attended Thunderbird School of Global Management for postgraduate studies in global management, and she attended an all-girls academy at the Villa Maria Academy in Chile before receiving her BA in political science from Arizona State University, where she focused on comparative politics. She speaks four languages. And she is fluent in English, Spanish, and Portuguese and French. And she regularly does media interviews in both English and Spanish. So that's what a rock star sounds like, in case you're wondering. I'm going to be leveraging her legal background and expertise by asking her a whole host of questions on data security, data privacy, and how concerned companies should be regarding the competing and sometimes conflicting regulation and legislation in the data protection and privacy spaces. So you're not going to want to miss it. Stay with us. Adriana Sanford is coming up in the second and third segments of the show. So the United States is under attack. That's what Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, told the Senate Intelligence Committee last week during the annual hearing on worldwide threats. Now, this is a very, very interesting annual hearing because it involves briefings from America's top law enforcement and intelligence officials. So the heads of all the U.S. intelligence agencies briefed the Senate Intelligence Committee on what, in their views are the world's greatest threats to the national security of the United States. So FBI Director, for, Director Christopher Wray, CIA Director Mike Pompeo, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coates, Defense Intelligence Agency Director and Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, NSA Director Admiral Michael Rogers, and National Geospatial Intelligence Agency Director Robert Cadillo testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee last Tuesday in a, in a huge theme of the briefing was that the cybersecurity posture in the United States especially concerning emerging technologies, was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, threat to the national security of the United States. And I think we've been saying that along, for the last few episodes, especially on this show. So Dan Coates, the director of DNI, essentially warning the committee that the United States is under constant attack by Russia, who, re- who views their efforts to disrupt the last presidential election as successful, not in the sense that they want one candidate to win over the other, mind you, and despite what you hear about in the media, because the recent indictments against 13 Russian citizens indicate that these covert cyber operations that the Russians initiated rallied for both major political tickets at one point or another. So 
but rather than, 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 the, than the Russians want, they want to sow the seeds of discontent in America, in my opinion. That's what they want to do. They want to create societal chaos among citizens in the United States. That's what they want to do to us. That's the goal of what they're trying to do. And Americans should really understand that. So in short, they launch these cybersecurity operations or cyber attack operations, I should say, through social media and other means directed at making us hate each other, creating turmoil from within and distracting us from the intentions of what our, our, our true enemies are. And, and they want us to hate our own system. They despise liberty and the freedoms that we have, and they are using cyber operations to meet their goals and objectives, and that is to bring down America as the world's sole superpower. That's what's going on here. So, unfortunately, some politicians are eating this up and politicizing this type of stuff and putting a spin on it to meet their political agenda, and I think it's really a disgrace. And I'm going to try to avoid getting into all that. I'm going to try to avoid all that nonsense and focus on what the threats are to our national security and what we need to do about it. So I found that Admiral Rogers' testimony was particularly interesting. One of the things that he emphasized to the committee that was to get the full intelligence view of what's happening and what the threats are to the United States and to meet our optimal performance in the intelligence space. I guess if you want to say it a little bit differently, maybe the question should have been asked uh, differently in, in the respect of, you know, how can we as a country be more intelligence led with our operations, both in the public and private space, so that we're moving together uh, consistently and working as a team, I think, he, he, as he put it. So he responded to that question by admitting to the committee that in order to reach our peak performance, the intelligence agencies need to get information from the private sector. And they need to understand what the vast intelligence apparatus in the U.S. private sector is seeing. And that, in my opinion, is really hitting the nail right on the head. Okay, Being a former employee of the U.S. government as a Secret Service agent, working in the private sector for so long as well, having opportunities to work in both spaces, even starting one of the first cyber intelligence operations in a Fortune 500 company back in 2005, I understand this point very well. Okay, I get it. So let, let me give you a for instance. And, and I have some constructive criticism here for the agency I love so much, the United States Secret Service, as an example. And, 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 and as you know, I'm a, I'm a former special agent with the Secret Service, and I love the Secret Service very much. They're very near and dear to my heart. And uh, I would do any, anything to help the agency that I could if they ever asked. So the Secret Service has a retention problem. And there are many reasons for that retention problem. And we're not going to get into them on this show. We'll save that for a later episode. But they have a great retention problem. Now, a lot of very well-trained, successful, high-speed, low-drag people from the Secret Service who have been part of the Secret Service's Electronic Crimes Special Agent Program, affectionately referred to as XSAP, protecting our financial critical infrastructure from attacks and cyber crimes and protecting the President of the United States from cyber attacks, often anticipated to be launched in coordination with kinetic attacks on principle, we used to call them, or AOPs, which started out as the Critical Systems Protection Initiative. We used to call it CSPI in the Secret Service. So this is important, folks. This is really important. So make sure you follow me with all the acronyms here. I'm going to try to lay it out for you. All these agents have top secret security clearance in this XSAT program. They're investigating the largest cyber organized crime groups in the world. Launching at one time was the most comprehensive intelligence gathering operation on cyber criminals attacking our financial critical infrastructure in United States history. So many of these agents, like myself, they left the Secret Service to enter the private sector in droves. All right, droves. So this happened for a few reasons. But one of the main drivers was simply that the government cannot protect the private sector in the cyberspace, and the private sector is responsible for protecting itself 
in the private sector is still under attack, and, and, and it was under attack, it's still under attack by organized crime groups and nation states, terrorists, insiders. Like they have a, a bunch of different, obviously, pro- problems and, and attack vectors uh, that they're looking at through the threat actor taxonomy. And so they desperately needed skill sets at the time, uh, for the most part, that only existed in the government. So being that these skill sets were in very high demand, a transformation was necessary and did take place, to some degree is still taking place, and the Secret Service lost some very amazing talent and very amazing people to the, to the world in the private sector. But we'll get into that in later episodes. We're short on time, and I want to try to get through my point. So now, in the present-day situation is that there, there are probably just as many, if not more, XAP agents now working in the private sector as there are presently in the Secret Service, who hold many different types of positions in the private sector, many who still hold security clearance in their private sector jobs that have the benefit of running and participating in intelligence operations as former Secret Service agents and now with Fortune 500 companies in our critical infrastructures. They're the same people that Admiral Rogers is saying need to feed intelligence that they are collecting and assessing back to U.S. government intelligence agencies. In my opinion, this is not happening right now the way it should for a couple of reasons. Number one, because the United States government intelligence analysts don't understand the insight and value private sector intelligence police can provide them and that would immensely help them in doing their jobs. And clearly, Admiral Rogers does. But I don't think that's trickled down to the rank and file yet. In fact, I, I, really, I know it hasn't. Okay, It just hasn't. And number two... The G is not willing to make it a two-way street in terms of sharing intelligence, partly because information in the United States government is painfully overclassified, painfully overclassified. And, and this, is, this is not necessarily the government analyst's fault, the rank-and-file intelligence patriots protecting us all. It's not their fault. But that's the rules that they have to work with right now. And quite frankly, folks, that's a major problem. So let me give you an example. You would think that with the Secret Service, having all this loyal talent, these former agents, these patriots trained by the Secret Service, who bore the trust and confidence logo on their Secret Service identification for so long, working now in the private sector with all this new exposure, new experience, new insight to add to their expertise into the threats that we face and and, and how we can defend against them and mitigate these threats. Why doesn't the Secret Service operationalize this enormous resource that they have in the private sector. I mean, why? Why? Why is that not happening? I've been asking that question for years. I can't understand it. Imagine the feedback and insight they could have if they got all the former XAP agents into a room to build a strategy to operationalize those relationships moving forward. I would argue that it would be an eye-opening experience, and examples like this one can be given across the entire United States government. I want to get into this a lot more in later episodes. We don't have time today, but this really, really bothers me. And one thing, and one other thing, we're, up, we're short on time, and I just, want to, I just want to talk about this real quick. When Admiral Rogers was asked if he was concerned about the cybersecurity threat we face from emerging technologies, he answered by saying this, yes, I am. Quite frankly, how bad does this have to get before we realize we have to do some things fundamentally differently? He further added, I would argue that if you look at the Internet of Things, if you look at the security levels within those components in orders of magnitude, if you think the problem is a challenge now, just wait. It's going to get much worse exponentially from a security perspective, he said. So the description of the little choppy, but hey, look, the message is loud and clear. We need to do things differently when it comes to introducing emerging technologies into our environments. We need to wake up. 
I've been saying this since I started the show, and we're going to continue to pound this away, and we're going to figure out ways to actually operationalize this and get, and get change and transformation uh, started. So we have to start thinking about things, how we do things differently, or we're going to be in real big trouble, folks, real big trouble. It's time to adopt to the threat, and we have to do it right away. All right, not next year, not sometime later in the future. We've got to do it right now, right now. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with CNN commentator Adriana Sanford after this short break. Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public, listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, cybersecurity expert, professor at LMU, author, lawyer, and international TV commentator, Adriana Sanford. Welcome to the show, Adriana. Thank you, George. I'm glad to be here. Hey, we're glad to have you. So I want to kick off the segment of the show by talking about the rapid rollout of the biometric program in India. So for those listeners here in the United States, can you tell us about the Adhar Identity Program in India and how that got started? Sure. This is this identity program is actually one of the largest biometric ID programs in the world. And Adhar means foundation in, in Hindi. The program has been around for about eight years, and it was basically a key solution to many of their societal challenges. The, the, the country's corruption has diminished, and they have basically streamlined a lot of their delivery of government services. The, the program will take in names, addresses, phone numbers, fingerprints, as well as photos and uh, the iris scans. And they've done this for about 1.2 billion, 1.3 billion citizens, which is about, yeah, it's about a third of the World Wide Web. So it's, it's a very big system. And considering that India is the world's largest democracy, it's, um, it's been great. It's been a real uh, challenge. And they've had actually a rapid rollout. So when I think about this, is it is it ten fingerprints and, and, and both both iris scans and what does it consist of? Is mm, it all I at don't once know. Or yeah, I don't know the details of the iris scans and the fingerprints, but what I can tell you is this system today is used by ninety two percent of India's population. And that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. So when when I think about this, you know, digging a little deeper here. 
how and why did the Anhar Identity Program take on this large role that it does today in India? Then that it, it, I don't think it was originally intended to take on the role that it has now. Like, what was the implications on the country's citizens and the tech and cybersecurity industry over there? Sure, it it, it did not. It, the the intent. Uh, the original intent was not uh, to take this kind of a role. It was actually, and we, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the advantages and I'll also tell you some of the concerns that they have. Okay. The, the system basically was meant to facilitate welfare payments and to provide medical services. They, they were looking at basically trying to help those that are really disadvantaged, especially the rural villagers that lacked official forms of ID. And so this was an opportunity for those individuals, if we had their iris scans and we had their fingerprint, they could get these services. In, in 2016, uh, the World Bank in their World Development Report said that this kind of a system actually promotes inclusion of a lot of very disadvantaged groups. So that was the initial uh, reason for doing this. Some of the uh, problems with this were that in some of these rural villages, the fingerprints, the, the fingers were so worn that right. it was difficult to get those fingerprints. So, you know, there have been some challenges with it and actually getting these people to locations where they can get those services is still an issue because they have to travel. And uh, so, so it's, it's been wonderful, but there are still some issues where, you know, they, they have had some, um, some issues in, in, in getting these services to these individuals. It's become now widely accepted in India to use this identity program, and you're seeing everyone. I mean, 92% of the population is now using it for opening their bank accounts, uh, authenticating loans, filing their taxes. I mean, you have, you have children with school lunches, uh, individuals, executives that are purchasing rail, their railway tickets on the uh, online or people accessing public Wi-Fi. I mean, it's used by everyone. And uh, because of that, and because it's now touching so many individuals, India really upgraded their hardware and in order to ensure that the system can actually handle about 100 million authentications per day. Wow. So it seems to me that Adhart's playing a really key role in India's migration to a cashless economy over there. Correct? I mean... It is. It is. And this has been great. And especially if we look at India, you know, the amount of companies that do outsourcing in India, uh, there are a lot of other companies that are coming in and using this biometric system for their purposes. So it's really taken on a new role in the country and their culture. So this is why basically the India ruling was so important, so, the, the Supreme Court ruling that came out. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. There was a, a recent Supreme Court privacy ruling, and I think that it, the verdict overturns two previous rulings by the top court, which said that privacy was not a fundamental right. But that's changed now. So you can, can you tell our listeners what this ruling was all about? Sure. Well, if we step back and we take a look at what's going on in the world, we're seeing that a lot of countries right now are taking a stand on privacy as a basic fundamental human right. And this historic ruling in India, it happened in August of 2017. Basically, the court said that there's an unprecedented need for regulation on how information can be stored, processed, and used. And Considering the, the large amount of individuals that are going to be affected, the data protection reform that occurs in that country as a result of this is going to have wide range implications for the rest of the world. 
So just to go back a step too, Adhar was not meant to be uh, involuntary, right? It was a voluntary program to begin with, even though most of the population is on the program right now. Is it still voluntary? It is voluntary, but for people that have no other form of ID, this is really something that they uh, that they would need in order to get medical services and welfare. And also, since it's widely used, you know, this is this is basically what people use for their ID now. Can it can it be argued from a legal standpoint that because people need it for these essential services that the government gives to their uh, their citizenry, can it can it be argued that it's not voluntary because of that? Because if I well, I, I can't really give you a legal opinion on that. I would just say that at this point, it's still voluntary. Right. Okay. So how how does the historic ruling in India affect our tech companies here in the United States? How's that? How does it have any downstream effects on business here in in America? Well, there will be wide range implications for our tech industry in the United States, as well as other companies that are outsourcing and outsourcing to India because the ruling, the data protection regulation that will be coming out will affect anyone who's doing business in India. The extent to which it affects us and the extent to which there will be uh, changes within our tech industry and within our companies depends on how much it will match up to the regulation that is out there right now in, in the world with regards to this issue. In particular, the European data protection regulation that was adopted in 2016. We see already that a lot of companies in the United States are changing their policies and procedures to be in line with that regulation, which actually will take effect and be binding on anyone who works with European Union uh, by May of 2018. So, so right now what we're seeing is our tech industry, our U.S. businesses, have been working on this regulation and seeing how that matches up because that's very different from what they've been used to and accustomed here in the United States. And there are other countries in the world, such as Australia, and uh, we're looking at how that regulation matches up with that kind of data protection reform. So to the extent the the data, the new data protection regulation in India matches up to the EU, we're not going to see m- many problems. To the extent it conflicts or competes with the new data protection regulation that's out there, which is basically a framework that a lot of countries are using, we're going to have uh, a little bit of a struggle. Our executives are going to have to figure out how to, to make it work, especially for companies like Google and Facebook that have users all over the world. So let's get into that a little bit more because I think that's the that, that's a big issue that companies here in the United States are worried about, especially multinational companies that do business in in, in numerous countries around the world. It's getting so expensive to meet the regulatory demands of each one of these countries when the delta between the the laws seems so disparate. So can you discuss? like some of the concerns with competing and conflicting multi-jurisdictional legislation in the cybersecurity space as it is regarding to privacy. I mean, here, I mean, what, how is it, do, do, are, is this going to force some companies not to do business in certain countries around the world? I doubt it will force them not to do business. It is definitely an issue and a big concern, though. We have, you know, 
Brad Smith said it uh, from Microsoft when he said, you know, we're at the point now where executives and companies are having to figure out which law not to abide by because there's so many laws that it's we're put between a rock and a hard place. It's what you saw. You know, if you look back at uh, the last few years, Microsoft was in contempt of court for not abiding by certain laws here in the United States with regards to an investigation when they refuse to give up information on a user without going through the steps, the proper challenges uh, to get that information from Europe. And uh, it wasn't just Microsoft that went through this. We then saw uh, the iPhone issue with Apple and the FBI when they were asked for a backdoor to access the, the phone, the iPhone in the San Bernardino case, uh, we saw similar issues with some of the other companies as well. Google is, has been struggling in Europe to deal with the right uh, to be forgotten, especially in France. And uh, these are issues that are complicated, very complex, and sometimes puts us in a very difficult predicament. When you've got a country such as the United States asking for certain information, if you're a U.S. company, you have to comply with those requirements, with those requests, especially if it's coming from the Department of Justice. And the issue is if you do comply without taking into consideration the laws of another country, such as those in Europe, you won't be working there anymore. They're not going to let you be present in their country. So these are the challenges that we're facing. And not only that, if we take a look at the rest of the world, uh, you may recall that in Brazil, we had a director for Latin America for Facebook that was actually arrested and jailed because certain information that the Brazilian government was looking for was not provided. And the interesting thing in that case was that the it was not regarding Facebook. It was actually regarding WhatsApp, an affiliate of Facebook. And basically what happened is WhatsApp, was re- they were requesting certain information because, again, it was a, a criminal investigation. They were requesting information on a user. And the technology that WhatsApp uses does not store the information. The Brazilian government was not happy with that response. And since WhatsApp did not have a presence in Brazil, they actually arrested the director of Latin America for Facebook. So it's becoming a very difficult and challenging place. And it's a scary place for many executives that are working in the rest of the world because they don't want to face these, you know, these issues of which law do we break or how, how do they mesh And unfortunately today, unless we all sit down and come up with a uniform set of rules, it will affect us. It'll affect our executives. It will affect our counsel. It'll affect our companies and it will affect our in-house counsel. In some, in some countries, the right to privacy differs from what we have in this country in the United States. So these are challenges. No, for sure. So in your opinion, are other countries interested in using a similar biometric program that India has in place today? Because to me, it seems like India is so much farther along and so forward thinking in this space relative to other countries say like the United States uh, in this instance. Uh, it, it, it's, just, it's sort of amazing that you know 1.2 billion people are on this uh, biometric program. I mean, what's the global perspective on programs like this in your opinion? 
Well, we do see, we have seen other countries looking at this system and figuring out how this system could help their challenges, their societal challenges. Especially if you take a look around the world, we have different approaches to how to fight terrorism and uh, the security threats that are out there, how, you know, hackers have managed to infiltrate some of the world's largest networks and the security uh, threats are expanding in scope. So different governments are diff- taking different approaches to this and to fight terrorism. In the United States, we've seen a lot of mass surveillance. That has been an issue. That was something that Snowden brought up in 2013. In in the UK, we saw something similar to the mass surveillance. We saw what was called the Snoopers Charter, where they basically put in legislation saying that they were going to start looking at everyone's information. And you can contrast that with other parts of the world where you have the right to be uh, forgotten and the right to privacy as a basic fundamental human right. This is creating a challenge. And um, what we're seeing is because surveillance is looked at differently and approaches are differently, different countries will react to this biometric system differently. Countries such as Russia, Morocco, Tanzania, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, they are interested in this system. Uh, Afghanistan and Bangladesh have visited the country, have visited India to learn more about it. They may be adopting something similar. If you take a look at, uh, even well, even within the EU, um, they are now combining a biometric identification program for uh, third country nationals, for visas and the entry exit system. France is looking at collecting a database of passports and ID cards of 60 million citizens. So we're starting to see biometrics pop up in different ways in different countries. And of course, countries that believe in the right to privacy are going to have very stringent laws around this. The question now is, how stringent are the laws going to be in India? You know, they're looking for a higher bar of privacy and they need to address some of the present setbacks they may have in this area. If we look at the United States, one of the big issues we have here is uh, the regulation or control of our data brokers, data miners. We don't have that in this country. So these are some of the concerns. How are they going to be addressed in India? How are they going to be addressed? Will they be addressed in the U.S.? Can we expect a higher standard for privacy in the United States in the future? I don't know. I would like to see something like that here. And maybe with all these changes in the rest of the world, maybe the U.S. will adopt a different system, a different framework for privacy. Privacy in the United States basically is you have healthcare privacy, you have financial privacy, you have privacy for minors, but we don't have a basic fundamental human right to privacy. So maybe we'll be the ones to change. Maybe our system right now with the US-EU privacy shield, which came before this new general data protection regulation that we're going to see in place, the US agreed to judicial redress for EU citizens if the United States in any way violates their right to privacy. So in other words, European citizens have stronger rights than we do, and our American uh, system is allowing them to have that. Well, I as an American would like to have a stronger right to privacy as well. I'm half Chilean. As a Chilean citizen, I have a right to privacy. So you know, it's, it's going to be an interesting time, especially when we have companies that are struggling with what to do with the yeah, law. This is definitely an interesting debate. And I think it's going to play out really soon here. 
Uh, and just obviously a lot of momentum and there's a lot of pressure building from around the world with the regulations that we have going on that are affecting our United States companies anyway. So, well, look, Adriana, we, we have to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Adriana Sanford after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Skilled migrants throughout the world can face a variety of challenges. Many times they settle for jobs that are below their skill level because their education and qualifications are not recognized. Do we need local experience in a global world? Join host Alma Besserton for the Global Workplace. We'll explore the issues being faced by migrants as well as showcase diversity and recognize the leadership and inclusion roles of some of today's top global organizations. Listen every Tuesday at 4 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our guest, Adriana Sanford. So, Adriana, we were talking about the sweeping data protection reform that's occurring across the globe before the break. And I want to get more of your thoughts about all this regulation because it, it seems to me like uh, there's really no consistency or parity of thought around this movement sometimes. And that, that's what's going to cause a, a, a lot of confusion. It's going to cost a lot of money for companies to do business around the globe. I just want to get your thoughts a little bit deeper about this. Is there any consistency around the, the, all this regulation? George, there is some consistency. We could see probably more uh, if these other countries match up to the framework that has been established by the European Union. The European Union in the past has been used as a benchmark for a lot of reform. The Know Your Customer came from Europe which we use in our banks, the gatekeepers initiative, which a lot of other countries adopted around the world. We didn't adopt it, but many other countries adopted it. That came from Europe. And for the most part, when we've seen challenges with regards to corruption, with regards to the internet, (laughs) the European Union has always stepped up and their framework has been adopted by other countries. So to the extent countries follow their process and their framework, it's going to get easier for our companies and for us to protect ourselves. You know, what you're seeing today is we're seeing a new landscape. It's there's deeper level of scrutiny going on. We have increased compliance, broader accountability. Much of this is because we're seeing, you know, the not only the terrorists uh, situation, but there's a lot of corporate dishonesty and and corruption has continued to mount. So we're starting to see that people are taking a different approach. Governments are diff- taking a different approach, and those that are most vulnerable are countries that either lack the legal infrastructure to to stop this, or actually, if they lack the advanced technologies that can combat their contemporary issues, we're going to see this. the The corruption 
is worse in places that don't have advanced technologies. And to the extent we have those technologies, we have to find ways of protecting our other human rights, such as the basic fundamental right to privacy. So some of the things we talk about on some of the prior episodes and even the last episode of, of Task Force 7 Radio is, should regulation really be driving the cybersecurity initiatives of companies around the, around the world? And shouldn't, it, shouldn't we be thinking about things from a risk and value perspective? So what, what, is, your, what is your take on that? You know, is, is all this regulation, obviously, I think it is doing some good things, but does it really, is it really where we should be? In, in as far as the data uh, data protection initiatives go in the cybersecurity space? Absolutely. And the reason being, if we take a step back and we take a look at where this has come from and where we are right now developing um, the legislation, let's go back to the European Data Protection Directive. The European Data Protection Directive was created in the mid-1990s when the internet first came out. That directive was created because different countries in Europe had different laws. It was like a patchwork system of trying to deal with the internet. The directive, which is not binding, but it provided uh, basically safeguards or guidelines for the EU member countries, which were 28 countries, allowed us to streamline a little bit more the whole process. And that worked really, really well. The EU Data Protection Directive was in place. The only problem with that is that since they were guidelines, different countries had tweaked those guidelines in different ways. Some of the issues were if you were a U.S. company and you were working and you had a presence, let's say in Italy, and a presence, maybe you had a branch or an office or a subsidiary in, 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 in Italy, France, and Germany. Well, your in-house counsel or your, uh, your attorney, basically the compliance group had to be uh, checking the laws and seeing basically how they mesh together. To the extent you had a hack attack, you needed to notify the authorities in all three countries. So you had a lot of work, a lot of, it was very costly and time consuming to keep up with the laws and also to notify, to notify these countries if there was an issue. We all of a sudden move forward and we come to the era of the hack attacks where companies were hacked. Uh, it was either those that were hacked, were going to be hacked, or were going to be hacked again. This basically created an issue for us and encryption became a something that a lot of users were looking for. As a result of that, we ended up also with another predicament. Snowden, Ed Snowden in 2013, basically told the world that privacy was not important to certain countries. And a lot of these other countries where this was a basic fundamental human right realized that the U.S. was using about nine of their companies, nine of their internet companies, to access information from their embassies, from their politicians, and from their citizens. So if we take a look at that, what happened? Well, in Europe, they said, at this point, we have to do something. We have to revise and amend our laws because that EU data protection directive, which was not binding, but all the EU member countries were using, was not sufficient considering how much we had advanced from the 1990s. So the new legislation is actually a benefit for these companies. The new EU data protection regulation called the, the general data protection regulation 
actually streamlines a one-stop shop, which means if you're one of those companies that was working in Germany, France, and Italy, you no longer need to know what's going on with these three uh, countries because it's binding on everyone. A regulation is binding, unlike the directive. But also, you get one data protection authority that you have to disclose your hack, the hacking to. So we're not sure which one you'll get. Maybe you get, you know, Italy. So your your company would notify Italy that you've been hacked, and they would take it from there and notify the other countries. You know, you may get France. You notify France, and they let them know. So this one stop shop makes it a lot less costly and also time-consuming. In addition, the fact that it's binding on all the countries means you don't have to keep up with the laws of the different countries. There's no longer a patchwork. In the United States, we still have a patchwork when it comes to these issues. Different states, this is why sometimes you find out at one point that you've been hacked, you know, P.F. Chang or Neiman Marcus, all these companies come forward at different times. And our users sometimes struggle with this because our customers, if they're not told that they've been hacked, it creates tremendous pressure later when they find out that their information has been compromised. And for the banks, the banks have to then issue new cards. And depending on how much money has been, you know, uh, taken out of the account, they have to, they have all these challenges to deal with. So it's, it's new legislation is good. We're, we're right now trying to make it a lot easier for companies. And to the extent other countries match up with this new system, it will make it a lot easier for so everyone. So GDPR, Not in your many- opinion, is basically streamlining the, the, the EU data protection directive, directive. Do I have that right? It's basically streamlining it so you don't have all these different things to do. It's basically one general rule for everybody. Right, right. And well, we can get more into what those rules are. I think it's important, you know, for individuals that don't understand this because the, the scope is also much broader. And this is going to affect not only those that have a presence, as I mentioned under the directive, it affects companies that have a branch, an office, a subsidiary, an affiliate in Europe. Well, the new regulation not only is a one-stop shop and has this binding effect. It also is broader in scope and will affect anyone, anyone who works with EU citizens in any capacity. So we're talking about middle-sized small banks, small companies that have no presence in Europe, but maybe they're marketing to European citizens. Maybe they're monitoring you as European citizens. Maybe they have European citizens working in their banks working for them, interning, any connection with Europe will now, uh, this new uh, GDPR is going to affect you. So you need to know what this is all about and what it means. Our universities that have citizens from the EU as students or workers, all of them will be affected. So do you think these small and medium-sized companies that have this very minimal presence or really no presence at all sometimes uh, in, in the way you just described in the EU, are they ready for GDPR? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think they realize. I think to a, in the United States, we're not discussing this and talking about this as much as we should. And this is the concern because even within the school systems, a lot of universities are really not diving into this as much as they need to. The importance about this is if you're a large company, yes, you have in-house counsel and they have a heads up and they know what's going on. 
these large multinationals even need to hire a data protection officer. This is a new position, a new capacity. We're not talking IT. We're not talking compliance. We're talking data protection officers. So we're going to have to train our people to be data protection officers. We need students that are interested in this field. And uh, companies are looking to hire here. This is a really hot spot. But for the smaller banks, for the smaller companies, they don't have in-house counsel. And maybe they're not aware because, they're, as you said, they don't have a presence there. So they're not thinking of the laws of other countries. And here, they're going to be hit with hefty – the data protection regulation is actually you're going to have heftier fines. And one of the issues in this new regulation, one of the provisions is a short-term notice for breaches. In the United States, we've seen some companies go a month, six months before they give notice. Well, if there happens to be a hack and information of an EU citizen is in there, within 72 hours, they must provide notice to the Data Protection Authority. So can you imagine a small or medium-sized bank that's not aware of this but has maybe EU citizens' emails and addresses and they're hacked? Under their law, under the European law, Within 72 hours, you need to notify Europe, the data protection authorities, that there has been a hack. So this is going to affect our country. You're going to probably see a lot of this in the news coming in May 2018 when everyone must be in compliance. And uh, you're going to, we're going to be seeing a lot of companies that don't comply, and we're going to see a lot of issues there. And all of a sudden, it's going to become a really big deal so in this country. How about different industries in the United States? I mean, are some industries affected more than other industries in, for, with GDPR? So, for instance, do U.S. tech companies have particular challenges with the provisions of GDPR as opposed to maybe uh, other uh, companies in retail? Well, all companies are going to have to handle this issue. If you're in retail, if you're manufacturing, they have this uh, new regulation has a provision which is called uh, – privacy by design, which means any product that you're creating, any apps in the future, you have to consider privacy in your design. They also have privacy by default, which means your firewalls, your settings, the default has to be at the highest level to protect privacy. Um, the only difference is with the tech industry. If we're talking about companies like Yahoo or Google or even Facebook, some of the challenges that they will face is when they comply with these regulations, it has to be, it takes on a very different role because it has to be in a worldwide basis if we're talking about the right to be forgotten. The right to be forgotten basically means an EU citizen has a right to tell Google if they want their information deleted after a certain amount of time. Well, this happened in France and Google went ahead and deleted the information that the citizen wanted deleted, uh, the French citizen, but they deleted it only in France and in Europe. And so basically you could Google the name in from, you know, sometimes you can go into Google and you put in Mexico or you put in a different country and then you access Google through those sites. And this individual did that and realized his information was still in there. Well, Google was in trouble because of this, because basically under European law, the right to be forgotten, you have to wipe it clean from everywhere in the world, not just the Google that uh, can be seen under the the, the European uh, Google sites. So this is a challenge. Another challenge is like for Facebook, they have users all over the world. And if they make a tweak, if they make a change, 
they can't say, okay, well, this pertains only to Europe or this pertains to Latin America. All their users have the same system. So at one point, Facebook was saying, please don't tell us how to do this. Just tell us what you want because we're going to have to make a master change, a master plan. So those are some of the challenges that you will see with regards to tech. But if we're looking at manufacturing or the supply chain, the supply chain, anytime you're dealing with Europe, you're going to be affected. So, or if you're outsourcing, or if you're hiring employees, you've got internships, you've got people, even in this country, we're so global at this point that even if you don't go out and work in the global environment, you have that presence here in this country because we, we're we very big on, on, on uh, cross-fertilization and collaborating and bringing in diversity, people from different countries. So to the extent you have European citizens working for you. So Adriana, thanks so much for coming on the show. I, you're, I really enjoyed listening to you. It's going to be an interesting year in data protection and privacy for sure with all these new regulations coming. I can't thank you enough for joining us. I'd love to have you back on again and, and back very often. Thanks so much. Well, we've, we've run out of time again, folks. I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 